Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. This week I'm talking with my really good friend Simon Head. He is a live sound engineer and tour manager. He's done work with Sum 41, The Descendants, SNFU, Treble Charger, and a whole bunch more. He also owns Insight Recorders, which is a recording studio that runs out of a barn that he owns, as well as does a lot of stuff on location. And we get into a really great conversation about life on the road and the realities of that and uh, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. I think we have a really cool conversation about diversifying your skills and the ever-changing landscape of live sound and how you need to kind of adapt and always be taking on new roles and really making yourself as accessible as possible. And I think he shares a lot of really cool wisdom, and I'm really excited for you to hear what he has to say. So let's check it out. Thanks, Simon, for coming on the podcast. Anytime, man. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give me a little bit of background on what you do, how you got started, all that kind of stuff? I started as a musician like in the early 90s. I'm saying like late 80s, early 90s. I always played in bands played music. Um, I found live sound and recording to be sort of like what people call like a trade. So I could stay close to music as well as being able to uh, create music. So I wouldn't go too far away. There's so many friends along the way that just get what we call real jobs and they don't seem to really stick around with with the music. I find that um, to be able to stay close to music, I chose to take up live sound and it was always something I always wanted to do. I did my first tour for no money with a band called Mel Havoc. I didn't get paid any money. I just went out with them for like two weeks or three weeks and went Vancouver and back. I really enjoyed it, you know, and I slowly but surely have stuck around and uh, and still do it. I opened up my own little recording studio in 1995. That was a traveling recording studio that I'd put in the back of my van and I'd take all over Canada and I'd record bands. And I formed my own band sort of in the early 2000s, late 90s. And we put some records out, did some touring and... Uh, had kids, got married. Well, got married, had kids. And then, uh, you know, I put some records out on a, a record label based out of Sweden and Japan and whatnot. And and uh, got a job working in university. Um, and now I work at a, at, a, at a live venue called the Richmond Hill Center for the Performing Arts. I do sound there. So that's a very brief synopsis of my, uh, my career. And, and, you know, there's been so many bands along the way and so many... Um, tours and things like that that somehow get a little fuzzy (laughs) yeah so when did you first start doing the live sound stuff then Uh, i would say around 1991 or 1990 i uh like i i worked at a actually when i was like 17 or 18 i worked at a at a pa company down in ajax ontario and uh the first real sound i did was uh I, i mixed a band in claremont um was that it? I can't remember how this all works. It was so hazy. But I managed to get all the gear for like kind of cheap. And I put this band on this and, and the little, I set up the sound system. And truthfully, I had no idea what I was doing. But I, I kind of made it work. And I remember the, the glorious moment of when sound came out of the speakers. I mean, like something that's so trivial was a very tough thing when you're like 17 and you've got this big PA system and you're loading it in out of your dad's back. Like his, my dad had a five ton or a three ton truck. And I was loading it myself. Like, I didn't even think to get people to help me. 
and uh, when it made sound, I was like, oh, this is great. Fist pumping. You know what I mean? Like, um, that's when I kind of got started really into it is when I just sort of realized that, oh, um, I can, I know how to do this. It was sort of like a, like a sixth sense. Like it became, it was easy to do for me in a way. You said that when you first got started, your very first thing was basically touring right away. Uh, was that kind of the plan was just like, oh, it'd be cool to like, just do this on the road full time or. Well, I never, I only really got a house gig once and that was sort of in my later twenties, but I didn't really, as, as a guy playing in little clubs and stuff, I didn't really like those guys that worked in those clubs. They always seemed a little angry and bitter. So for me to be able to travel as well as do something I do and perhaps one day get paid, that was a, that was a dream. That was like, yeah, that was something that was like very important to me to, um, it was like independence, like getting out of the house. It's like something to do that it was mine. Like nobody in my family, I don't come from a long line of recording engineers, sound engineers. Like, you know, I have musicians in my family, but no one would ever think to like get in a van and travel all over North America and as, as glamorous as it sounds. <laughs> But no oh, yeah, one, being in those sweaty vans all day. Yeah, and... you could you could determine who farted by the smell. Um, Gotta love that. But yeah, like two weeks in, you get to know that really well. Yeah, I know what you ate, so I know what you smell like. Yeah. Uh, I remember touring <laughs> with a guy who just smelled like salamis the whole time because all he ate was salamis. It's disgusting. <laughs> um, Al Shaw. Oh wait, I'm not supposed to be naming names here, aren't I? <laughs> Whatever. Expose. <laughs> he knows he smells like salami. He probably smells like salami right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if that, I think that answers sort of the thing. It was sort of something always in my blood. I like traveling. I really do always have like traveling, and I still kind of do. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it's as a kid, we used to like take road trips down to like Florida and stuff. And that was always a, it was an exciting thing for me. And I seem to be able to, uh, maybe I was conditioned as a child to just keep quiet and uh, enjoy the ride. Yeah. So now that you have a house gig, how are you finding that in comparison to being on the road? Well, theater house gigs are a little different because um, you could take it in two directions. Like you could say um, um, you hate everybody that comes in or you can hate <laughs> the situations. You could say that. Like a lot of times you can say, oh, you were here the same time last year and you were equally as ill-prepared this year as you were last year. And even though I remember taking you over to the side and saying, here's five things you can do to make yourself more organized – that sometimes can get on your nerves a little bit where you're trying to make their show better and you're always like, see, my whole thing is try to, I'm not your enemy. Like when people come in, you can tell definitely that they've been, you know, they have a little PTSD when it comes to working with sound technicians or technicians in general. Because in general, like generalizing, um, house sound guys and they're sometimes can be a little crispy. And it's based on the amount of work they do. Like my venue where I work, we do over 300 shows a year. And I do at least half of them. So after your 10th dance show in a row, you get a, get a little bit crispy. So to answer your question, I think my idea is I try to make things as fun as possible. I don't go out of my way to, you know, fuck people over. Yeah. Um, not that people at my work do, but I've been in situations where people have specifically shut down because they're not interested in helping someone who's not willing to help themselves. And I understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, you can't fight fire with fire. You have to, yeah. you have to be, um, be, don't be schmarmy, but just be normal, be a nice person because people will recognize that. Like if you're a dick, people will smell that out. Like, 
I used to do when I was traveling around, I used to go into a club and I could tell within five minutes what kind of night the whole thing, the whole day was going to be just by meeting the sound guy in the first five minutes. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Everyone always remembers the shitty sound guy. Yeah. And the thing with, with the live sound engineer that I, I don't really get is like going back to the grumpy sound engineer is that like, I think that when you're a sound guy, you get a chance that a lot of guys who run studios don't get, which is you get to work with a lot of new bands on a regular basis. You know, you're constantly getting new bands coming through and and like you're getting a chance to make an impression on them right away versus like the, the studio guy who's like, hey, guys, like your band's cool. I want to work with you. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to come to your studio because we've never heard your stuff before. Right. But like, yeah, live sound, you get a, you, you tend to get that chance a little more to make your impression. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's definitely like the difference between being thrown by chance with a with a group who's going to be awesome is greater than you going and finding a band who is awesome to come and work in your studio. I, I get that. The other, well, I mean, the other, and the first impressions are is important there all the way. You know, it goes back to what you said. Just don't be a dick because whoever you see come through your little club's door might be the next whatever anything like name it there were there there's always room for superstars in this business and they're 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 being bred every day like you know what I mean? yeah <laughs> you know and, and because we have so much more um space for that type of content to be showcased it's coming out faster and more than you can believe so mm -hmm. how do you approach live mixing different than when you're in the studio um i have a few well I have a few kind of things that, that are separate. I'm just trying to think that one out. Like, obviously, every time you go to a different venue, it's going to be a different scenario. You're going to have a different sounding room, a different sounding PA system, maybe even a different console. Like, I'm, like a lot of people now travel with their little consoles and they make great... It makes it so much easier for everybody, not just the, the touring group, but the, the house group, because they don't have to worry about too much issues, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's all down to the console. Like if you have some shitty console in a shitty club, it's not going to sound like an awesome console in an awesome venue. It's going to, there's always that challenge to try and compensate for what's lacking. So if I go to a venue, and even if it's a nice venue, it might be like, the gear might not be as strong based on the sound of the venue or the size of the venue. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's overpowered and the venue's too small. And sometimes the stage is too small and the guitar amp is too loud in that venue, but not loud enough in the other. I mean, like it's all, it all comes down to the band, you know, and this is, if I'm traveling with a band going to venue to venue to venue, it turns into it turns into what we have to develop some templates here because if we don't, then we're just going to always be trying to like new stuff and reinventing stuff. And the more time you spend on doing, getting that perfect kick drum sound, the harder it is on the band and you and the venue and everybody hates that stuff. When you sit, you know what it's like when you hear kick and you're sitting there for 20 minutes hitting the kick drums because some douchebag can't get a kick drum sound. Like, so my idea is to get up, get down as fast as possible and just stay out of the way yeah. and, uh, and try to be, as much of a team player to the to the venue, um, and try to help them because the more you help them, or you know, the more they're going to help you. There's so many times you kill them with kindness. If they're dicks, then you just say, "Oh, you know, you just be just be nice." Like you can't escalate things, you know. So a lot of it's politics, like getting sound and and all that stuff is sort of like, "Oh, okay, I know what this drum kit sounds like, and I know what it's going to sound like." So I'm going to do these things I do. And then, you know, over the years, there's a, de there's a definite sort of like, 
you know, uh, frequency split where everything I like to everything sort of like, you know, have its own spot. But with recording studios, it's almost like every, you know, you're there and the band comes in. It's a different sounding drum kit, different player. It's a different, um, it's a different, um, the studio, it's, it's drastically different because the studio is much more clinical. Like, even though I do on-site recordings, you have this limitation of the room that you're in and you know what it's going to be like because you've been in rooms like that before and it's your gear and it's your microphones and your headphones and, and, and you know, it's almost like you've brought your house to that location or your studio is there and that's where you like to have stuff. And mm -hmm. so, you know, even just down to like, I don't know, how clean the toilet is, <laughs> right? Big yeah. difference. Yeah, yeah. So you had mentioned kind of just the fact that like every room is different and that's going to get you different results and, and you kind of have to react to the room. Do you have any tips for like learning a room quick? Like, is there anything you'd like to do that really kind of helps you make sense of it faster? A lot of people like to play their favorite songs through the PA system and then they can hear what it sounds like. I used to play Clarity by Jimmy at World. I used to play like the first three songs from Clarity and that used to be my my sort of benchmark about what the, the system could sound like because I know how that, that record so well. A lot of people do that. You know, for me, I just like listening to my favorite songs because I know what they sound like. I don't, I'm not, I've never been sort of like a gearhead where I look up at the speakers and go, oh, that's the E2345s with the extra drivers and they got the passive blah, 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 blah. I don't, I don't really do that. I just sort of like listen to it and I'm sort of a cross between like trying to be arty with it as well as trying to be technical and understanding like certain limitations on certain things like a bass guitar sounds like that for a reason, you know, let's not try to make it sound like an electric guitar or let's not try to reinvent how a bass guitar sounds. So yeah. So I, I just like, yeah, I just listen to music. Yeah. It's the same within the studio too, right? Like oh, yeah. to, to learn your speakers and your room there, you need to just listen to music that you know. And Yeah. The thing with the, with the studio monitors though, is like, it's such a misnomer of cranking it. Like I always get better results by not turning up my mixes. Because if you turn my mixes up, it seems like my vocals are always too loud when I'm mixing. Well, you start to excite your room more too, right? When the louder you crank your speakers. So if yeah. you don't have a treated room, then you're going to just make things sound worse. Yeah. So if you're closer to your speakers at a lower volume, you're going to get a better result as to uh, you know what you're doing. Yeah. So you also mentioned um, the very fact of doing live sound is like, you know, you don't have time to get that perfect mic position on the guitar cab or whatever and you're, you're often very tight for time so how do you maximize your time like what what kind of things do you like to do with that you mentioned making templates um like not like literal templates but just like have a template of how things work like if you're doing a festival and you're loading in you have to like what's called in the biz is a throw and go where you throw it up on stage and you cross your fingers and you start and you the band like i have done Lately, I've been working for a band where I'm the guy, I'm not only just uh, doing front of house, but I'm tour managing, and I'm doing the monitors for the band before they even go on stage. And I'm setting up one of the guitar player's stuff because he's one of the lead singers, and he doesn't want to be show. and like, rightly so, you don't want to be showing your fans. Sometimes it's a bad result when the star of the show is setting, like leaning over with his ass crack, hanging out, setting up his guitar. That's, you know. <laughs> so I've done that. So I'll be tuning in the monitors, um, and then not only that, but I've set up a little recording rig where I have five like little GoPro cameras that I set up, and those are always set up like the day, the minute I show up. They're always like, I need four mic stands, could I please get them? And then I set these little cameras up, and I, I have them ready to go. 
So when it's time to go, it's like everything gets thrown on stage. We have 20 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes to have it all up and ready to go. And granted, this is at 2 or 3.30 in the afternoon when it's like 110 degrees. So you're running around like a fucking chicken with his head cut off. Um, and sometimes if we fly out, it's just me doing everything. Like when we're in local, we have the luxury of having an actual stage tech, which takes most of the load. So not only am I setting the monitors, but I'm getting the towels, I'm getting the waters, I'm printing out the set lists, I'm um, getting the band and telling them, oh, five minutes to go. So these are all the things that we do. And then as it's sometimes I've said to the guy at front of house, I said, listen, if I'm not here and you hear the intro go, just start mixing it. You know, I'm not, I'm not offended, you know, and generally the people who set up the PA systems uh, are going to do a better job at setting up your mix. You know, you know, the little, the little things about the band and you know, oh, this is the part where I turn the solo up and this is that. But that systems tech is the guy who knows that PA system. He flew that PA. He knew, he knows everything more about that PA than you ever will. And he is your closest ally. Cause if you piss that guy off, next thing you know, it, he's going to be throwing limiters all over it and, uh, and, being a dick because you know you've somehow somehow i've not been in that situation where i've i've worked with people i just can't work with and that's what happens <laughs> they they always win so i've learned in my elder age just to sort of let them you know like i said if i'm not here go ahead and do it and sometimes my whole dream would be to sit behind the guy and go oh just here go for it and just sit and have a coffee during the show like that would be amazing <laughs> You know, after all the other shit. And then as soon as the show's over, I'm taking the cameras down. I'm taking the acoustic away. I'm making sure that everything, the band is back in their spot. I'm making sure everybody's happy. And then I'm making sure that the, the gear is clear for everybody. And then, then we go and take pictures. So I take my camera and we go to the meet and greet. And I take a bunch of pictures where we put it on our website. And then the people come to the, the band's store um, website that I built. So then they can get their picture there and it speeds up the process, you know. So that's like, that's, a, that's one show. Like, and it starts at 10 in the morning and I'm usually walking out of there done around eight o'clock at night. And I'm usually kind of half lit by 1030. So, you know, but it's a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work doing stuff like that. So you're almost kind of describing more of like a, a tour manager situation more than like a front of house sound guy. Yeah. Type of well, role, I mean, right? because we're in an industry now where mid-grade bands need to have sound guys but as well as they need tour managers so you can't have both you know so you have you have both in one person so that's sort of the uh like that's that's something to be prepared for i mean you know and it's it's doable if you have a system in place where you're not going to be like you there's all sorts of little checkpoints like i did i tour managed and did sound for some 41 for like a year and a half and those are a bunch of kids and I, we were making up the story as we went along and then cut to five or t no, actually 10 years later. And I'm tour managing this small town pistols band and doing sound. It was like, Oh, I had to remember the stuff that I used to do, but at the same time, they're a different band. You can't use the same agenda that you have as a sound guy and tour manager that you would 17 year old kids who play punk rock music. You have to have mm -hmm. a, you know what I mean? They'd be a little more sensitive to people's needs and wants and, uh, you know, especially with sound, like I'm not going to mix the small town pistols to sound like some 41. That would be ridiculous. Yeah. Though. But at the end of the day, I guess it, it all comes down to making the band happy. Right. And if you make the band happy, the things are going to move smoother. And yeah, you know, yeah. I found I found that if you have a little bit of talent, that helps. But you have a lot of personality it helps more because these people need to hang. They're going to hang out with you. You know, I've been on a few shows lately 
where I'm hanging out with the crew and you could tell they all hate each other. And not only that, but they hate the band. So you're like, oh, uh, okay. Um, what happened to like family lovey-dovey kind of stuff that I've been working in the past five years? Sometimes that doesn't exist. And I forgot and I was spoiled about like, hey, they treat you as one of the bands. They don't, they don't tell you to wait in a different room or, you know, be demanded to be served upon. You know, it's, it's a different story than out there, you know, and I've, you know, I always found it weird when I meet crews and they're just being douchebags and you're like, why are you being dicks? And then you're like, oh, because the band are dicks. So the reason they're dicks is because they've been taught by the band to be dicks. Like such a horrible, like vicious circle. They're just trying to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Because the band, like I, we did a thing, uh, Robert Smith, we were the local crew down at the amphitheater and I go, oh, it's going to be a bunch of sad tea drinking British people. And, <laughs> oh God, they're going to be angry and this and that. They were the happiest blokes you've ever worked with. Why? Because Robert Smith is a cool person. You know, yeah. that's why he likes his crew, you know, to say what you want, like Taylor Swift, same thing. She's a cool person, the crew lover. She loves in the crew are good people to work with. It's funny, eh? Like, you know what I mean? And sometimes if I ever had, I would probably never do it, but if someone said, I want you to work with Douchey McDouchebag and we'll pay you a million dollars or whatever, a million dollars, we'll pay you a lot of money per day to work with Douchebag, but you have to be a douchebag like Douchey McDouchebag to do. I'd be like, okay, I'm not interested. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You know, I got to, I got to go to bed with myself and I have to wake up and I have to, you know, I have ethics, you know, that's a Yeah, if you're just going to hate life, there's no point in doing it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Do you have any tips you could share for mixing live sound specifically? I think uh, not looking at the meters and not trying to understand the math behind it and try to get more like, get vibey with it. Like understand like what's happening and where it's going to happen. And generally sort of like my idea is if I can get a mix that I can, it sounds like it's right in front of my face. A lot of it's attributed to the PA system, but a lot of it is like, oh, it's where you've placed things tonally. So like vocals are always inherently in the middle, you know, that's where they break out. So embellish. And, and a lot of people are like, you know, I use a lot of subtractive EQing um, and I'll generally do a little bit of like peaking or, or adding high end or low end if I really need to say on certain aspects of things. But there's several trains of thought on, well, there's a couple of trains of thought on EQing. And, you know, if you want it to sound bassier, then just drop the mid and the mid high. There, it'll sound bassier. Don't embellish the bass. Like these are, that's, if when you do that, when you go above what's considered, like now I'm getting mathy, but when you go above what's considered unity, you're actually adding not just that frequency, but noise. So to have things subtracted in your EQing structure is very important with live sound. I found, you know, yep. especially 630, man, dirty 630. That's the dirtiest of all frequencies. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Cut it out. And you just get, take a bass guitar and just cut 630 out and you go, holy shit. That's, and then now imagine like 10 monitor mixes on, in wedges with all that 630 cut, like through there, you're going to have the shittiest sounding stage sound ever. So that's an important, important frequency to take note of kids. Yeah. What about, <laughs> what about the bands themselves and like, their live stage volumes and that kind of stuff like is there anything that like do you are you the kind of guy who's just like get your get your sound your sound your tone crank your amp as loud as you need to and i'll make it sound okay in front of house or do you try to get involved in that kind of stuff i've had the luxury of working with a country band where the guy is a way over stage right and he does not interfere at all but what i did have was a drummer stage center 
that I moved over to the stage left. I physically moved the whole drum kit over to stage left because our lead singer, she wasn't as loud as, you know, and she didn't like to have the drums. And every time she walked away from it, I always had this killer gain on it. And then it was like from cymbals. So I physically moved the whole drum kit over to stage left and they dug it. And the only reason I got the idea is because we we played with Winona Judd. And her drummer was way off to stage left. I'm like, that's fucking brilliant because he's not in the mix anymore. He's part of the band, but he's also now allowed more space. Um, so I'm kind of like, if you're happy with what you're doing, it's going to make you play better. And we can work around a lot of it. Like, But at the same time, there's there's limitations. Like, If everything's just too loud on stage, then I have to say, hey, everything's too loud on stage. And I would, if I were you do these things and it'll probably help you out and then they begrudgingly do it and then they just turn it back up again and you know so <laughs> it's true you know, uh, yeah well like definitely the uh the positioning of everyone's amps and drums and all that kind of stuff in, in relation to the vocal mics is a big thing like I, I i've turned around guitar caps before and had them face the back of the stage and that that helps a lot too right oh yeah yeah we did that once in uh a like for uh the same band he had he just wanted to crank it it turns out there was way too much gain like we recorded it it was like there's too much gain on this like what's going on and i guess he had something switched from a different thing that it wasn't like he just didn't realize like how much gain was coming out of it so yeah i've turned it around before but usually if it's an open backed cabinet it doesn't really do much anyways yeah Yeah. Yeah. unless you stick like we've done uh, we've put baffles sometimes in front of the guitar amps and we have actually at my work we have this killer drum cage that's I don't know how expensive it is but it's really expensive and uh, it's like a seven or eight no it's a six something foot high acoustic shell that goes around the whole drum kit and it really helps as a drummer they're so weird to play behind but yeah but they, they do wonders on stage well, the louder you play is the same thing. Everything's coming back. And that actually can have a reverse effect as well. Like if the guy's playing too loud and your mics aren't really, you know, tuned in well, it, it can put a lot of phasing issues with your with your drum kit. Um, so generally, there's no real rule, but it's the lesser of two evils. You know what I mean? Like if you're like, oh, I can now, because if the guy hits the kick drum like a motherfucker and then it bounces back into the mic from that shell, you're creating some issues there that no mathematician would be able to figure out. Yeah. You kind of also talked about um, some tour managing and how you worked with Sum 41 and, and you were doing live sound and tour managing them, right? Yeah. Yeah. How did that kind of transition happen from doing the live sound to the tour managing? And how did you get involved with those guys? Oh, um, well, I worked with Trouble Charger, which Greg Norrie managed Sum 41 for like the early, most of their career. And um, I, it's funny, I've been trying to think about this lately about like, because I worked for Treble Charger and, as, and we did like one or two tour bus tours and they were fucking glorious. And then they're like, uh, hey, do you want to work for this band Sum 41? You tour more. And I'm like, okay. But I think, you know, in like the back of my mind, the insecure part of me thinks that maybe they wanted to kind of get me out of there because there were several pushing politics in that band and that I, I had worked for them for a treble charger at one point for um, over a year and a half. And I was sort of like starting to like understand the dynamic. Like I drum tech their records and like, I have a gold record from doing that American psycho record. Like I worked a lot with them and Greg gave me this opportunity, but I think he kind of was thinking maybe trying to, maybe I don't think Bill was too interested in my, my work um, because I wasn't putting up with this bullshit 
So I got pushed over to Sum 41, which is great, because I toured in the U.S. We were in a van, and it was a crew of one. And because I tour managed and because I was relatively cheap, I managed to stay on tour with them for a very long time, like a year and a half. We did a bunch of radio shows, promo, promo stuff. Like, you know, they, <laughs> it was just like a crazy year and a half, like 18 months of touring with like five weeks off. And I was a younger man back then, and I don't think I could do it now. I don't think I could maintain that. Even if I had a room and someone else driving, I think I would go mental. I think I would. But yeah, I sort of became the de facto tour manager because I was the oldest guy, and they were too cheap to hire a tour manager. So there was one point where I actually quit. Like we're halfway through a tour and I'm like, I I was catching shit because the van broke because apparently I was driving the van too hard. (laughs) So I, I was sitting there catching all this heat while the manager's sitting in a fucking heated floor Prevo driving across Canada. I love Greg. Like Greg, he knows this, he knows, but I was so angry because like you pushed me off these tours where with you guys, where I'd be in a bus and I'm in this tour and I'm like, politics was getting in the way. And it's like, I can't do it. Either we're going to be friends as a band and me, or I'm going to be your enemy and I'm going to fucking torpedo this whole shit. I'll just drive away. I'll leave. So I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't. And they actually, I did one more tour with them after we went down to Florida with um, Good Charlotte. And then I came back and they're like, asked, said, okay. Here's the deal. Do you either want to be a sound guy or you want to be a tour manager? And I said, I don't want to be either. <laughs> I like <laughs> I like you guys too much. And uh, you know, I don't want to do either. Like I had a band at that point and our band was on the way of like getting an actual record deal and and I'd put the band on hold like for like, over the year and a half to to do this because it was like an opportunity I couldn't turn down. But I had I had moved on and I was like sick and tired. I even got asked to go out and tour with like Simple Plan. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. And I could have. I could have gone out again. I could have been out for I don't know for how much longer. But I think I was just so sick and tired of dealing with um, shitty budgets. And, you know, I was always organized, somewhat organized. I always had my shit together. But like industry was changing so much back then there was so much you had to deliver and you had to like and then the industry like let's think like 2001 the fucking record industry was dying like people were like eating the snakes were eating themselves and so i had to navigate my way through that without being a dick and without turning into the person that i hated which was being a fucking dick like i didn't want to be a dick so I chose to sort of get out of it for a little while, and I took a job at Living Arts Center uh, out in Mississauga, and I did sound there for about 10 years from then. And, uh, you know, I was kind of doing that already, but I was, like, I was sick of the road. I was just done. And, and at, at the age of 21 or 31, 31, was it 31? I don't know. You, you're like, screw that. <laughs> I got married. That was another one, too. And I had kids, and I was like, I'm not interested in being away for any period of time anymore and even being away now for like a couple of days here and there like i can handle it but my kids can't you know and and i get that and that hurts you know mm-hmm. you know well it's yeah it's the reality the reality of it is, is that like like you said like there's no budgets for having these big crews and the bands need it but they're just gonna milk people for what they can right yeah well i mean around 2001 there was this other band called sr71 and I remember we, those guys. yeah 
And they were like this sort of vendetta band against Greg Norrie because they were called something else. I think they were, I don't know, called the Shitty Bands or something. I don't know. But they um, they were called like SR71 because um, Dave Bendeth was um, their A&R guy who was also Triple Charger's um, um, A&R guy. And I think it was a vendetta because I don't think Greg wanted to sign some 41 to A&M Records in the U.S. So they went with Island. And so they were like put together as this sort of vendetta. Like there was this sort of, you know, so I remember we were, <laughs> we were doing this show and, um, I can't remember Charlotte. Was it Charlotte somewhere in, in North Carolina or somewhere? And, uh, we were playing with SR 71 and we pull up in a van and a trailer. They pull up in a bus with a crew of four and they're playing like right after us. They're not even playing. And they've just been signed. Like same with some 41 just been signed. So we're doing the show, and, and uh, Derek starts slamming SR seventy one. He's like, "They're a bunch of fucking pussies, fucking assholes!" Like this is at like some fun park. We're playing the B stage for like, I th- can't remember who was on it, like the, on the main stage, but it was like an amphitheater situation. So at the end of it, the all the four security guards take Derek and literally grab him by the by the scruff of his neck, and I'm like, "Oh shit!" So I run behind them, and they walk him right out the front gate. And they start like they look like they're gonna kick the shit out of them. So I literally threw myself in front of the of the 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 promoter and the security guard. I'm like, talk to me. You talk to me. Don't talk to him. So it was really tense. And I'm like, listen, I don't know what's going on, but we don't want a problem here, and we want to just make sure everything's safe. And and like you know, we're we're can we come back into the into this thing? And you're like, they let us back in somehow. And it turned into this crazy, like, thing where SR-71 actually couldn't get their gear together. Like, they couldn't actually pull their show together with a crew of four. And we had successfully done this 25-minute set with just a crew of one, and everything was put together beautifully. But, um... <laughs> so, while it, while Derek was ripping on the band, I would, their, their front of house sound guy was behind me, and I turned around to him and go, I have no idea what's going on right now. Uh, blah, blah, blah. But it was all engineered. Him, like, Derek and Greg had already engineered this whole thing. <laughs> They didn't even tell me. Like, I'm like, are you? I wouldn't have set anything up. Like, I would have had the van running. I wouldn't even mix the show. I would just say, let's get the fuck out of here. So, uh, so we're in a, we stayed at the same hotel that night. And uh, we had to get really early next day. And they got in this huge fight with them. And, uh, like, there was shit thrown around. And, oh, it was brutal. Whatever. That's an old tour story. <laughs> I just got nothing to do with live sound, by the way. No, it's just, it's just the realities of being on the road. Sometimes you deal with some shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now uh, let's transition out of that live sound world then. Now you, now you have your, your studio. Um, can you give me a little – can you just tell me, like, what kind of uh, setup do you got going on there? I uh, I actually uh, – I have Pro Tools, and I'm running Pro Tools 10 and 11. I have um, what people like lovingly call a Hackintosh. I have a Hackintosh computer that's PC parts running Mac OS. Um Actually, it's a little sick right now. So I've been also using my laptop over here to to record bands. Um, I run it all. I use uh, an M32R as my sound card and my preamp and and EQing and and uh, I don't really have much to like process. But I actually have a whole. I think you can see behind. No, maybe you can't. But I have a whole other B rig, which is just an eight input with preamps. But it's actually in a bigger road case than it needs to be. Um. So I have a few different sort of configurations. So so I can actually run 32 inputs using an S16, Behringer S16, as well as an X32 rack. 
Or I could take just the console to a session and have 16 ins. Um, or I can actually take the X32 in this rack that's below this laptop um, and run a 32-track recording session using just this rack and a laptop. So the, the big idea is to be able to take something to a, to a venue and set it up real fast. So I'm in the midst of trying to get like a split snake kind of situation together where I can just come in real fast and set shit up and, and set it up. Um, I actually, I've been really into like 3D printing. So I've actually been printing off these like tables out of road case stands. So I kind of can come in now with everything set up where it can actually just all get put together. And I could be recording within like an hour and a half, like the way it's all set up now. And I'm still doing a lot of location. Like I'm anticipating my studio in the next five years or so won't be a studio anymore. It will, I won't be, to, I won't have a home base. Um, so what I'm doing right now is making sure everything fits in a road case is, and more importantly fits in my car because, uh, I don't want to, you know what I mean? Like if I need to record somewhere, I can do what I did 20 years ago and just put it all in my car or whatever and take it somewhere and set it up. And that was really exciting stuff, you know, like back in the olden days. Like I said before, I sort of touched a little bit on it, but I used to travel through with a band and I'd meet the opening band and say, oh, you're a good band. I like your band. Uh, I, would, I could come through in a month or so and I could record your band. And if you find me three or four more bands, I'll give you a discount. And that was sort of like how I started the on the road recording studio and i did that hard for like before i met my wife spring we um her name is spring before i met her i was i was living on people's couches and sleeping in hotels and touring all over canada recording bands and that was how i made my living and i settled down and and i stopped doing it but i still enjoy you know like even next week actually tomorrow tomorrow i'm taking all this gear to mississauga almost oakville and setting it up in someone's house and we're recording for seven days and i just worked with a band actually close to your studio just in the basement where i brought everything set it up yep. recorded it all and uh you know now i'm trying to make everything smaller so i'm trying to make it like less intrusive for my back and make it more effective you know like i have this big red road case with two computers in it i don't need that i don't need to bring it with me i have my laptop you know so that's sort of my that's my setup as a, as a whole and i've never really been like a get the gear techie guy i just like things to be simple and i, I like it to sort of be effective and useful and uh less intrusive like and less work you know like i just got this thing a couple of weeks ago where i recorded the tea party live in london ontario and i had a i had to set up a 40 track recording studio but i don't have a 40 track recording studio so i got a few computers i made a i networked them together i you know just so jeff martin could have his eight tracks of of uh of guitars you know rather <laughs> so, so so i i set this thing up and it was a pretty impressive looking little footprint but it was way over the top for what I needed to do. But, you know, you kind of like to, you know, strut your stuff a little bit. Like, I bought a new road case. Like, I've not, I've never bought new road cases ever, but I bought two in the past two months that are, like, pretty snappy looking, you know? Like, I, I, I don't know. It's so interesting. Like, I'd really like to get into live recording, like, more than, than I am right now, so. Well, it sounds like, like, I know that you have your, uh, your barn studio as well, but, like, do you, do you think you're you're getting a lot more work on location? It sounds like, right? 
Well, because it's so far away from the city, like where people would come up and although people come up and there it's hooked for life, like you've recorded there, like yep. they come up and go, oh, this is so awesome. This is completely not what Toronto recording is. But it took me a long time to sort of get people in motivated because I was falling asleep up there as well. Like people come up and go, where's the Starbucks jokingly? But they're like, no, actually, where's the where's the Starbucks? Like, where do we actually go buy stuff? And it's in a town like four kilometers away. So you have to drive there. Um, so so for me, it's like I enjoy, you know, I love my studio. I love it there. But I, I'm coming to the realization that it's got a it's got a it's got a expiry date. You know, my parents aren't going to live there forever. And either I buy the place and keep it moving. But actually, right now, it's inhabited by a family of raccoons. And they are... Uh, I they... remember the last time I was there, we were hearing some raccoons above us in the yeah. ceiling. I think they had babies. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for people who might not know this, uh, Simon's studio, he's, he's got a studio in a barn in Uxbridge, Ontario. And it's uh, it's a little bit out of the way from the city, but it's it's a really awesome place. It's a very, very cool spot. Awesome acoustics. I really, I, I had a lot of fun recording some drum stuff there. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I think uh, I was talking to uh, Jim Bryson. I don't know if you know Jim Bryson. He's got a solo project, but he used to play in a band called Punch Buggy. Um, he made a studio that's one room in Stittsville out in his backyard. That sounds sort of like in. That sounds something that I could get my get my head into, where you're not making a control room and a live room anymore. You just have one room that sounds good, and you just record with headphones and then you can have this big space to hang out in because you know sometimes your control room like I always enjoyed larger control rooms so I always have larger control rooms and I would give up performance area for my space that I work in and in comfort level but I've been in closets before like like the control room like I recorded um I recorded snow uh, like had a job I was just like every five days a week I was recording him from like eight at night to like five in the morning and uh, him and MC Shan, but his his control room was literally well, I don't want to say literally a lot because they say it a lot, but it was it was about five feet by eight feet. That was his control room. And you imagine you put two pot smokers and me in there, and it's like, oh Jesus <laughs> Christ, this is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> so uh, hey, but as just... long as you get the good takes, then that's all that really matters. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the barn is the barn is great. Like. I love it there, but it's still people getting people out there. And, you know, for me, with priorities, it's like recording's, recording's always been my little vacation-y kind of thing to do. It's always, it's been fun. I've tried to make it as fun as possible. And when it was my full-time job, like, I guess in the early 2000s, and it just, I had to record every band under the sun. And I didn't find that to be very exciting because you get the same type of band who wouldn't really necessarily put the homework together or do their homework and be ready to play. So, you know, I'm sure you deal with it too, where people come in and you're like totally not ready and they can't play and you have to somehow fix their stuff. And we live in an age where that can happen, but it's also not just the shitty playing, it's the attitude, you know? So everybody expects them themselves. People, to... people know that that technology is out there. So they rely on it. Like they don't want to improve their, they don't want to practice. They're just like, yeah. oh, the engineer will fix it, right? Yeah. Like Propaganda, they got it together, man. They play. They play what they record. They play. They don't really fix anything. And they just sound so amazing because they actually went through a phase where they weren't playing very well and they knew it. So they ended up taking it way more serious and making their job. So they go in for like six to eight hours a day and play because that's their job. I mean, they owe it to their people that listen to their band to be as best as possible. 
And that's a good motto to look at. I mean, not everybody's going to have eight hours a day to play because they're not making money at it. But at least put the time in to understand, you know, and I understand, like, some people have limitations about where they're learning, what they're learning, and how fast they're learning. And But uh, it could just be a little simple thing. Like, the only, the only story I really got is this drummer I was recording years ago, like, years ago. He's a shitty drummer. Why? Because the drums were like super set up real low and he was set up like a, like he was, he was probably 17, but he was playing it like he was, since he was 11. So his kit was like super low and awkward and he was super handcuffed and the snare was super low and the hi-hat was low. So I said, give me 10 minutes. And I just set up his drum kit for him. And I went back on, I said, I'll come back in a couple of weeks and I'm coming back through anyways and we'll record some more. Came back, he was a different drummer. Why? Because he now had opened up himself to his kit was set up in a way that he could play it because mm-hmm. he wasn't, you know what I mean? Like it was ergonomically, not ergonomically, it was set up for him. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess, yeah. Yeah. It's one I, of the things with the studio, right? Like I, I think that a lot of bands that are, that are new, they, they, they learn so much in that first couple of studio sessions that, they're like, oh shit! Like this is how it's done. This, this, I need to practice more. Like I need to, you know, set up my drums different or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. they, a lot of bands come out of that kind of stuff, better prepared for the next time. Yeah, we had someone show up and um, there was no cymbals, and I said, uh, oh, if you need cymbals, if you've got them, you can use some cymbals. I got cymbals here, and and she said, no, I don't hit cymbals; they get in the way. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. There you go. Al Nolan can attest to that. He was producing that one. We sent him <laughs> home. They couldn't play. They couldn't get through a song. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's a bad sign as soon as someone comes in like that, eh? I, yeah, it was a big red flag. <laughs> <laughs> so you said um, you had a lot of bands coming through that just kind of seemed underprepared and that kind of stuff. Was there anything that you would do ahead of time? Like, do you focus on pre-production or was there anything like some sort of handout that you would give bands that maybe would give them an idea of what to expect or any of that kind of stuff? Like... No, but it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I mean, there should be a handbook. Like, you should write up a handbook and say... It's true. Somebody should write a book. Yeah. The the, the pre... So you want to be Bon Jovi, you know, or so you want to be a rock star, here's the five fundamental steps that you need to... Without sounding like a dick, too, at the same time, because there's, there's several things people don't know. Like, they don't know. Like, bass players never show up with new strings. I don't know. I never, I never understand that. Why? They don't. Like, these, I put these on, like, five months ago. These are great. And, you know, same. Like, I'm guilty with guitar strings. I never change my guitar strings anymore. But then again, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's same with drummers, too. It's, it's like, yeah. I, I think that these days with, like, the budgets and stuff being so much smaller, bands are like, oh, well, I don't have the money to put onto, like, new drum heads or new new strings or any of that stuff. And yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's cheap true. out and, oh, you're going to sample or replace it all anyway, so yeah. I'm not going to get new heads. Yeah, actually, I'm trying to get away from triggering. Now, I think I'm going to have to do it sometimes from time to time. But, like, you know, if the drummer's good and the sound's good and the drums sound good, like, I'm willing to, like, because I guess to get really meticulous about, like, a kick drum and stuff, if I can't hear it there as a ghost note or it's not playing as loud, then I would sometimes I'd lit- I would go in and just sort of make level match all, like, the, the kick drums and then sometimes snares are important too. So like I would actually cut the whole drum kit on a good snare and then cut that snare into where the snare was supposed to be. And if it's in an eighth note, it would fit in seamless and it would sound beautiful and would be super consistent. But I, if the drum playing is good and like I'm sort of veering away from perfection and making it feel better, I think that's a, 
important to me now. And I think I think that's where we need to go as a whole with the record industry. I think we need to go more like, does it feel good? Like, is it, you know, because that's why we listen to music, because it makes us feel good. Mm-hmm. So that, that being said, like, what, in your opinion, uh, makes a great mix? Like, after the fact, what, what can you do to make it sound better? Um, I... I had a, I was sort of like, I work for, uh, sometimes this gets sent stuff that's like not very well recorded and it's my job to mix it and master it and make it sound good. Um, it's just some person would email me something from the middle of nowhere saying, I did this in my basement, make this sound like Green Day's last album. Um, and there's only so much you can do. I mean, like there is the, 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 the old, the old saying shit in, shit out. You know, if it's if it's if it's shitty, there's only so far you can take it. But if it's great, it just does it itself. You know what I mean? Like, you just do a, a few like, you know, if it's recorded properly or if, if it's done. If you pre-think, like, for, I guess here's one: you have to sort of think out like, where is this going to sit? Like, where is what this instrument I'm playing? It needs to sit. And you know, I should have that figured out before I start worrying about the EQ and compression and and the relation to harmonically where it sits, like all these need to be considered before you even, you know, start making a sound. Um, especially with guitars and things like that, because that's it. Like once you've, you know, I mean, you have a few outs where you could just record the DI and do it later, but I've always had a, had that adage. Like if it sounds good, then record it and it'll sound good later. And don't try to overthink and try to overanalyze because if it fits, it fits. Like, who is it? Brian Eno is going to erase the whole Joshua tree because he didn't like it was the way it was coming together. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's, he was just wasn't happy with it. They're like all of them grabbing his hand as he's putting all the tracks into record to to erase with or without you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just make if it's got to feel right. You know, it's got to you got to have all these things sort of in your mind's eye about what's going to sound. That sounds really hippy trippy. But you gotta kind of have a, a an idea of where it sits and the, the understand the song. And if the song is like a heavy metal song, then of course that's the way it's going to sound. But if it's sort of like a a pop rock song, then I always think if I can make it sound like hundred uh, percent fun, Matthew Sweet. If I can make anything sound that good, then I'm sort of half. I'm there. I've done it. You know, that's always been my benchmark of. That's recording. when you know it's done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If it feels like that, that record's so beautiful. I don't know if you've heard it lately. It's so good. Yeah. What's his name? Ryan. Oh, no. He's not Ryan Green. I can't remember the guy who recorded that, but he just did the, uh, he did the last Gaslight Anthem album, too. I'll have to look it up. But whoever produces that stuff, it's all beautiful, big room tones, great sounding album. So are you more of a fan of like just committing to sounds up front? Yeah, I actually record post EQ and fader. Like in compression, like I'll do that because if it's like if it's fitting together, like there's there's I could say that there's been never a situation where I've like oh I shouldn't have done that, and if I did, then I can I'm we're in an op you know obviously we're in a, we're in a world where we can fit it and like fix it, but like yeah I think it makes people play better if it sounds like it's gonna kind of sound like when you listen to it later, you know what I mean like. Um, 
it's really tough to explain to somebody. Like, I don't know how those people do all that blue screen recording or like video, like um, movie shooting where it's like, don't worry, there's like five X-Wing fighters behind us. There's a couple of Chewbacca's doing fucking backflips. <laughs> it's going to be great. Don't worry about it. We'll fix it after. Just pretend that you're surprised. Like how, you know, you know what I mean? How, and it's the same thing with music. Like you put in this sort of drum kit where it's, you're hitting plastic plastic like Tupperware cases or whatever and go, ah, it's going to sound like amazing. You wait, you know, you got to kind of have it where it's going to be so you can be inspired to make it, make it good, you know, like it should be. It's true. You want to feel the music, right? Yeah. If you're not believing it as you're singing it, everyone's going to notice that. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this guy. I was recording this guy and he was like super into guitar playing and he had all the greatest rock faces ever, but we were recording but he would be like playing a live show and he'd be sweating. Like he'd be doing these, you know, like rock faces and stuff. And it, it was hilarious because you're like, dude, I'm not, I'm only recording the guitar. Like <laughs> I'm a, not videotaping you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then again, there was a, what's his name? Uh, Colin from Maryland's Vitamins. When he sang, his whole body would shake and you'd hear it as he's singing. And it just fucking felt so great. Like to hear him sing, like, and he still does it. Like, he's just like, and, and you get it. And he has, you couldn't just sit there with a couple of fingers over his ears going, eh, nah, nah. like, he fucking nails it, man, when he sings. So I guess you get a pass if you're singing, you know, I guess. But playing guitar, you should be doing scissor kicks and shit. That, that, that doesn't translate <laughs> onto the record. <laughs> so, so as a producer, how do you get the, that out of people? Like, how do you create that energy or make them believe it? Because there's a lot of people that just come in and they're, like, afraid of the red light, right? Yeah. I, for me, like, it changed, it's changed a lot over the years. My thing now is I'm a fan of music, so I always try to find good things in things that, I don't know, like, I try to find the best thing out of what's coming to me, uh, and I try to understand it and try to, and I really, truly, honestly appreciate when someone comes to me with something and it might not be my favorite type of music, but I really do appreciate like them doing that, like sharing this with me. So I, I tend to be like more of a cheerleader. I don't really try to put my agenda on people as much as I used to, because I used to all the time. I used to say, "Oh, it sucks," you know what I mean? Like because that's what I thought producers would have to do. They'd have to tell you what sucked and what didn't suck. And I got the best lesson out of, out of working with um, Ian Blurton. He produced a record for me, and he got stuff out of me that I never even thought I could get. And he didn't have to say anything. Does that make sense? Like he would be inspire me because you could tell he was seriously into what he was listening to, and that inspired me to try harder. So you can't say, hey, try harder. It's like telling somebody who's angry, you got to relax. Like, hey, you just got to, you know, that makes it even more tense. So he would somehow get these takes out of us that were like killer. And he really didn't say much. And he would say things like, like he'd smoke a lot. And you'd say, again. And you're like, okay, all right, okay, I can do this. And I was singing and I'm like, again, but. Again, just do it. Like, you know what I mean? And you're like, whoa, you know what I mean? So he had this sort of like caveman way of primal getting shit out of people. Like, I don't know. It's true, though. It's like, it's kind of like, um, it's just a positive reinforcement, right? If, yeah. if you're like, oh, this, that takes sucked. Like, do it again, do it again, yeah. do it again. You suck. Like, whatever. Then, like, nobody's going to be feeling it, right? And you're going to yeah. wear down people so fast. Whereas, yeah. if, if they think you're, you're digging it, 
they're more than like they'll call out their own mistakes. Yeah. I worked actually with this inner city surfers band and they used my studio and they brought in a producer for one record because I recorded most of their stuff. They brought this guy in Wayne and he used to play in a band called the Boys Brigade. And he's also worked with, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy who produced, what's his name? Uh, God damn it. The guy that produced So by Peter Gabriel. Um, uh, gonna have to look that up. Yeah, whatever. But he'd worked at Joshua Tree, like he'd worked at that studio and stuff, and and he would get in the he'd get in the studio and jump up and down and like push the band around, like he was like <laughs> like you know freaking out and trying to get in it. You know, we would just look at him like, who is this fucking crazy person? Why is this crazy person jumping around? Like, and he was trying to do stuff. You're like, he put the guitar amps in the control room with us, so that's what was fucking cranking up. Like, and I was just the engineer, and I was like. At the end of it, and I ended up having to go on tour. I took off for a month, and I came back. And as I left the first time, I'm like, I said to Dustin, I'm like, do never, never bring that guy in here ever again. That guy, <laughs> never ever. He is just too crazy. Like he would like, he'd be smoking and mixing, and like smoke ashes would be going all over the board. And then he'd get up and like jump up and and run out the door and like, I don't know. That's just so theatrical. Like, so. I mean, to bring it all around, like my whole thing is just sort of like I enjoy what's happening and I seriously do enjoy what's put in front of me because it's perspective in my life. Like what I do normally is work with, you know, crazy Russian people who want, you know, more accordion in their monitor mix and and that's not necessarily exciting stuff for me. Or I'll work alongside of an engineer who comes in and so I don't actually get to pull my craft together. And so this is something that I can actually just be a fan of. And that's, I think that's important to, is just keep your ears open and just tell them like when they're doing a great job and you don't have to necessarily tell them when they're doing a shitty job. That's up to you to determine how far you want to go with that. And I think it's all going to be realized, like unless they're super deluded idiots, that band that is, that don't <laughs> understand the concept of good and bad. Everybody kind of has this sort of unwavering self-deprecation thing behind them saying anything they do sucks and they just need someone to say you know what that doesn't suck you're pretty good you do good a job you do a good job like you know you find the positive things because it all it all you know it all snowballs into uh yeah daniel lemois that's his name yeah yeah it's true it's so true though it's like the the more positive reinforcement you give people the more likely they are to come back and yeah, and, and just the better of an experience. They're they're more likely to tell their their friends and other bands and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh yeah, like Simon was a cool dude. Like, yeah. just loves everything we do. You know. Yeah, like, I always enjoyed when the band called something would come in, and then they'd break up in the winter and come back with as a different band, um, with two different people, and then that band would come in next year as a different band because they kicked three people out. And then the other three people that got kicked out would start their own bands out of spite. And then it turned into this crazy thing where, like, in the late 90s, I was recording every single punk band that ever existed. And I wasn't doing anything, like, west of, like, Etobicoke. Everything was all in that Toronto and Pickering and Ajax region. I wasn't recording any bands in the west. There must have been somebody out in Hamilton just doing that. And I think there was somebody out there doing that already. But I would do every single band under the sun. The, oh, I did do a band, Trunk. They were from the they were from the west side, um, and uh, so it just all basically compounded. And I think it was a lot of it was price. Like I was cheap. 
you know, and I kind of knew what I was doing at that point. I kind of knew what I was doing, but, uh, like most of the time, like when I was younger, I was, I was a pretty good faker. I kind of faked my way through stuff and I didn't fake it. And I, I wouldn't let people know that I knew exactly what I was talking about. Like I would say, I don't know what's happening right now, but I, I think I can, you know, <laughs> like, you know, my baked out was, oh, the, the, the faders look happy. Look, they make a circle. They, you know what I mean? So I kind of played dumb a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I still kind of do. As long as they, as long as you're getting good results, right? <laughs> That's all that matters to them. I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> do you have, um, in terms of like your process, do you have a certain workflow that you like to stick to? Like, do you always work on the same instruments in a certain order, or? Um, yeah, like, it's very rare if I'm recording a drum take that I'll keep everything. Like, very rare, unless it's a live off the off the floor recording, then it has to be all captured perfectly as one take. Um, I'll generally do the drums with guides and then, uh, and then fix whatever it can be fixed on the drums. If it's like blatantly, obviously bad. Sometimes I'll just beat detective the whole drum kit. Um, sometimes it's easier just to beat detective the whole drum kit than it is to actually try and find the mistakes, but that's drummer to drummer. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, everybody's different. So I don't, I don't try to make that into something that's like what I do, you know? And that's, that's, I think that's important too, like trying to keep everybody as their own little entity as opposed to, and that's where you get to think more, you know, it's more fun to try and figure out new exciting ways to, to do stuff. Um, and I'll do bass and if, depending on how the bass player is, like I'll do what, I don't know if it's called that, but I call it pocketing. Like if it's the bass is it kind of off and it's blatantly off, I'll fix it. And that, to me, the only thing that really works with that is is actual um, elastic audio, believe it or not. Like, people abandoned that years ago on drums because it was, sounded like shit. But it works pretty good on bass, you know? And it's funny because I've been switching between the monophonic, monopo, monophonic and polyphonic, depending on what bass it is, what sound it is. Because if it's monophonic, you can actually, it'll track it better. And uh, I'll just fix, fix up bad boo-boos. And uh, and guitars, vocals, and sometimes I'll try to do all the guitars per song if I have the band that's there. Um, I did a thing with a band called Arson a couple of years ago where it was a lot of guitar overdubs, and it got too much. Like it almost got to the point like it was out of my comfort level about trying to keep everything in perspective. And it really, I learned something about notes. Like you got to take notes, like what you did and what works. Because if you have too much perspective is what we had, it turned into like, how are we going to pull all this together? Like I have 60 tracks of, of band here and there's, there are only four of them in the band. So how are we going to make, you know what I mean? Like, how are we going to fit all this together? And we mixed a lot. And, um, sometimes most of the time now I'm mixing, I don't even bring the band in the mix. I'll just, I'll just mix it and send them mixes. Like we're in such a great era now where things so fast and there's all this box sharing and drop boxing. It's like, it, it turns and what it does, it teaches, cause I work with a label up in Sault Ste. Marie and they can't come into the studio and mix with me. So they get better at keeping like their thoughts together. And at the same time, there's always a rule. Like only one person can email me with the notes. Like you can't have five different people with five different notes. Cause it would just be, I tried that with a band and it, it was sucked cause everybody wanted more of them. So you got to say, oh, okay, you need the ambassador. That one person needs to send the emails. And some of them are awesome. Like I should actually write a book on the notes that people 
send me <laughs> about how they want it to be more like in your face or like I want it to cut more. I want it to pop like words that are descriptive that you're like, um, I don't know what that means. There's one that actually said it sounded like he was having a dream or a hallucinic, hallucinic experience, like hallucination. Like he was like, I wanted to sort of come up and grab you in the soul. You know, it's like, dude, do you want the guitars loud or not? Like, <laughs> I don't know what you want. <laughs> I don't know what you want here. I, I love the visual thinkers. Like, oh, I, I need it to sound like more like red or something. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. I work, I work right now with, a, with someone who is, who, who is a visual learner. And and we're too, like I'm a list writer. I write lists because I I'm also somewhat of a visual learner, but more of a list maker. So if I want things to happen, I make a list and then I write. I follow the list. You know, like if if I'm like learning how to do something, I will go and learn. Like the tutorial won't be necessarily watch what I do and do the same thing because I can't learn. There's two separate people in the world. There's the visual and there's the not visual. And uh, yeah, so I'm not really like that type. Like I can decipher it because I, I speak a little bit of musician. Like I kind of understand what they're talking about. But you start getting into emotions and things that just sound so cheesy over email. Like it just needs to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I worked over um, years ago with a guy, Michael Horwood, who is a, a drum composer. And he wrote, wrote like scored movies, like ones like Dennis Hopper would be in the 70s. And he lives in Lethbridge. And this is sort of in 2000 and six i think we did it and we we were using skype to communicate but i was using this file sharing service called qnext to send him the files and every time we did an edit i'd send him the little snippet and then he'd listen to it and then get back to me and he lived in lethbridge and his internet was garbage so i remember a few times like thinking okay i don't think we can do it tonight like it was weeks and weeks and weeks of editing and and then i think i just sent it away to be mixed but like to this somebody in calgary mixed it but um i remember how slow it was trying to get things together like how to like he'd like listen to it it would take like five minutes to send the file to him even if it was an mp3 and he'd be like listening to it going no no it's close and i read music so i'm reading the score and and he's like you know trying to explain how it all works and it was brutal. I remember it was pretty brutal. How long does it normally take you to finish a mix? I'm pretty fast. Like yeah. uh, if I'm doing it, if I'm recording it, I could probably mix something in about three hours and be happy with it. Does your live sound experience kind of come into play there? Because you're you're forced to make fast decisions live, and so you do it. I think I try to not think about it too much and I try to think of it as a listener. Like if I'm a listener and I understand if I hear the song so many times, I'll sort of think what I like what as a listener would make me happy. And, and from there, it's so you try to take a perspective of the listener as opposed to someone who's been involved with it the whole way. And it's tough to do. That's why people send their stuff away to be mixed by other people. Because it's just like, oh, I don't have any more perspective on this. And you, who knows? It's still a gamble. Like, when you send stuff like Treble Charger sent American Psycho to Dave Ogilvy, and he makes pretty much three quarters of the record, but I don't think there's any of his mixes around that, you know. So they they spent money to get someone to mix it and didn't like it. So and that's Dave Ogilvy. I mean, like he's he's a mixing god. So so for me, yeah, I I don't really listen too much about. I just if it works, it works. You know what I mean? Like I have taken all the faders down at one point and uh, and tried to like re introduce how you know i want to mix it and usually come like very rarely i'll take it down 
and the results are always good. Like mixing with other people's funny too, because like like when I was mixing this arson record, it took a long time to mix, and it was a lot of online like communication. And it turned into like frustrating for me. But then at the same time, the results, I started realizing that the results were good. Like, you know what I mean? So I had to accept the fact that some people know what they're talking about. And when they want something, it's not necessarily, there's a lot of things that someone says, I want this to happen, but you know, in the back of your head, there's five reasons why that won't work. But there's nothing stopping you from saving that as a different file, doing what they want, going through the process. That's why we have this shit in front of us. It makes it easy. So, you know, there's several things that I think, well, the bass sits here, the guitars sit there, the drums sit there. You want to throw the whole thing and turn it on its ear and start it and do this. Okay, okay. well, there's, we've done all this work to get here and what you want to do is basically destroy it all and start again. I got, you know, as age, as you get older, you start realizing like, eh, it's not such a bad idea. Like, we'll try that. But I still have my mix in my back pocket that I like. Yeah, and at the end of the day, like they're your clients, right? So they they want yeah. what they want, right? Like yeah. they, they want your input, and they they know they trust you to get it sounding good, and then they're gonna just tweak from there, right? Yeah, they want their input. They want their input to be heard, and that it's, sometimes that's important. I I mean, there is something to be said about someone being in the room with you because they can you can get through that real fast, faster than you could with um, than if you were. You know, but the other time is when two minds are thinking two separate things in the room, then that's where arguments start. But this sort of negates that, where you have one person listening to it, but it's already done. So they're like, oh, okay, well, how much do I want to fight this battle about this one shaker sound or something? Like, mm-hmm. you know, this in the big picture, I've had some time to think about what I my thoughts are, and now I'm getting the mix. I mean, it's a slower process, but at the same time, you can think about it more, and you're all, you know, you're being put in as the listen, as the the client. You're being put into a wave where you're like, "Oh, he's giving it to me this way," and I can, I like that. But let's make this happen to make it more me or something. You know what I mean? I find that like it's it's a good compromise a lot of times too to just like if someone wants to be there for a mix, I always say like, "Okay, you know what? Let me work on it for a few hours and then show up." Like that way, like I've had enough of yeah. me in the mix. And then, like, the yeah. band can fine-tune from there. And and, and yeah. that way you're not going back and forth with, like, oh, I've done this, and I've committed to it, and, you know. Yeah. Like, I couldn't imagine having the singer and the guitar player and myself in the same room mixing this arson record. I couldn't imagine it. Like, I think they would argue with each other more <laughs> than they'd argue with me. And the whole thing would just be kind of a bit of a yeah. mess. So having that space, that physical space between people is, is kind of neat. And I really, never really even thought of it that way, where, you know, at least if you're in the room, you can kind of work through it faster together. But at the same time, you're doing things that might necessarily not help the song. And that's important. You have to think about what's helping the song. Like, it's all about ego, too. The bass player always wants to hear more of the bass yeah. player, you know. You know, the guitar players always want to hear more of the guitar. So when it, like I've done mixes where it's like, I want more me. It's like, I just turn the whole thing up. Like, is that better? <laughs> you know what I mean? As a joke, because there, you all got what you wanted. Yeah. You just turn the whole mix up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there yeah. you go. Uh, so, yeah, the, in the inner workings of a band, like, these certain things, like, certain, we can't, we can't, we can't fix or um, anticipate the luggage that bands bring into the studio Mm -hmm. like you can't you know some of them have known each other since they were little boys and girls and some of them are just getting to know each other so the dynamic is always as per you know especially and even playing doing a live show you know or whatever it's like 
you don't know, you know, there's been times when I've worked with a group that have made a record in a different country and then come into town and they use a band and we'll, we'll go to another town and use a different band. It's completely different bands, different dynamic, different understanding. Like I generally like most of the people, but this band has 14 people in it. If we were all in the same city, there'd be 14 people playing because there's three different bands. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you're going to get a different, um, different, different uh, uh, interpretation of the, of the music, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess going back as well to having people in the room too, and like the reason why I, I tell people to show up later is because like, they don't know what the checklist is in your mind of what you're going to do. Like you're probably going to turn up the bass and make it louder and the bass player will be happy. But like, you've got these other things ahead of you that you want to tackle first and, and that just creates way less problems when there's not people like analyzing what you're thinking and what it should sound <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Like I've had, you know, you bring up the kick drum and someone goes, oh, I have an opinion. Like, dude, just sit back there, play your fucking Game Boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is what you want to say. But be like, we just started. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I, you know, I've had people leave the room. I said, get out of here while I'm doing this for a while. Um, but, I, you know, to me, you know, I always set up the recording for the mix to make the mixing and mastering easier. I mean, we're, we we can do that now. Like, we're especially with recordings that only take like a week to do. Like, can you imagine like when people go to different studios doing drums and then moving around all over the place and and working with different producers and then trying to put a record together after that? You've done all this recording. Like, we don't have that luxury, but at the same time, we don't. That's probably good because dealing with all that content you know like bands do that now they work with different producers and they'll put a record out with different producers and then they'll or put different songs and record the song several times and then use different versions and it's it's it gets very complicated and that's why you know that's what we can do now but i don't know it's uh i think i think we have that we have that benefit that it's all done it's all there it's fairly fast it's fairly um vibey you're not trying to generate something mm-hmm. you know yeah. what's something that you like to do with your mixes that others might think you're a little crazy for for doing i always do a backward symbol every record every record any record every record there's always something backwards happening somewhere um and it's like it's like my wilhelm scream you have to find it <laughs> i've done one uh yeah something like whoosh, that sort of thing that you can turn around a big old break and turn a backward symbol around because it's so easy to do. You just, you know, copy the symbols over and then reverse it. And then that, that always sounds cool. And I don't know why I do that. But I also used to do a lot of, um, I used to put some tambourine. I used to be so anti-tambourine. But then I thought, I'll be the tambourine player on everything. So then I turned into the tambourine player. Um, now, generally, there'll be something that'll be like, oh, the other was a, is a auto, auto fade, auto pan, I mean where everything pans around. So if you're listening to it, you'll hear like a hi-hat or something, or if it's a shaker or percussion, I'll make it auto pan. It's always two bars per pan, you know? I do so, that one a lot too. I like that. Yeah. It's exciting, right? Because it's something that people, like I always have been impressed by mixes where I listen to something and go, oh, I never heard that before. And I've been listening to this album for my whole life. And wow, I never even noticed that was there until now because I'm, 30 years older than I was when I first heard it. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's, it's neat. I think, I think it's something too that, um, it just excites the, the band 
sometimes too, yeah. right? It's like yeah. everyone's so used to listening to mixes where like everything is panned in one position the entire time. And then yeah. you hear something that's moving around, you're like, oh, that, that's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Ogilvy mixed our first Foursquare album, and he's like, I'm getting movement here. I'm like, I had no idea what he was talking about. But then I realized, oh, he was panning something, you know, to, differently, or I'm going to get some movement. That's, a, that's an exciting thing. But at the same time, yeah, if things are sort of set in stone where they're supposed to be, then when something moves, it's like, whoa, that's exciting, but you can't do it all the time. It's like people that do the same thing all the time with lights or something, you're like... Yeah, I've seen that move all the time. I'm bored with it. You know, so you can't just keep making things pan around. So you got to kind of make it interesting and choose where it's going to be. Yeah, you know, for sure. Um, aside from the normal cleanup of making tracks sound good and clear and all that kind of stuff, um, how do you go about making creative moves in your mixes, like the panning thing, like, or I guess even especially in live situation, like you don't really get to experiment too much, or do you? Um, no, with live, it's been interesting because. Uh, not the band I work with, but bands I have worked with, I've gotten to do neat, exciting things where they're they've played long enough where they understand like where it's going, and they'll they'll fuck around with it. Like there's times, like, even with SNFU, I toured with SNFU for a very long time, and uh, we're doing something like in some town, and they start you know even just at soundcheck, like soundchecks are more exciting to me, they're more fun. So they do something, and you just start delay, like put delay on the snare, and then they play around it, and it turns into like. A jam, you know, like that's happened once. My my very favorite time that ever happened. Now that I remember that, it was at the 360 Club, and I was mixing Random Killing for some reason. They were like, "You got to mix us," so I'm like, "Okay." And they have a song, and and Drew burps, but I managed. I don't know if you. I forget even what they're called, but there's a there's a delay where you can actually hold the delay. So he burps, and I take the delay, and then I loop it. So it's like this burp, and then he burps for as long as he can, and then the burp's still playing in the background. And they're like looking around, and we let that go for I don't know how long. It felt like a minute, but it's probably only like 10 <laughs> extra seconds. And then the band's like, gah, 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 boom, boom, and they go back into it. And it was like one of these moments where I felt like I was like jamming with the band, you know, like that. And that never, that kind of stuff, when that happens, is. You know, it's it's kind of magical. And that was long, long time ago. But I don't really try to put my... Well, I end up doing it. Like, there's certain things that are kind of trademarky mine, like snare sounds and stuff, like, that I'm trying to get out of. But I think my, you know, kick and snare sounds are pretty... They're pretty me, but at the same time, you could listen to any Steve Albini record and go, oh, it kind of sounds like that. Like, that's always been my major influence when it came to, like, drum sounds is that sort of Steve Albini room drum sound stuff, which all he's doing is ripping off Jimmy Page anyway. So it's not like, you know, he's, there's anything exciting happening. So you talked about your favorite memory. Do you happen to have like a disaster story, something that might have gone wrong at a show? No, not not really. I remember we were doing a, a doing a sound check over headphones. Like there was a two stage scenario where there was the B stage was playing and the band was setting up and I was checking with headphones and as soon as I turned on the PA, it was like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, this band, I turned it on. The whole PA went into like low end feedback because my levels were like something had gotten really fucked up. So it was like, and I found out what it was going on, but it took like five seconds of, and I'm like, and then the band started, but it was like, that was pretty embarrassing in front of fucking like 15,000 people of having the PA in full 
low end feedback. I could, still to this day, I have no idea why they did that. I think it was something about the because um, you know in in live live sounds uh, live bands uh, live PA systems sometimes they put an aux they put it on the sub on aux, so the subs will be controlled by like a like a monitor send. So I think I just had that dialed up way too high for the kick drum because it sounded, you know, I was kind of playing with it with my headphones and I didn't realize the gain I'd set was also going down to that sub aux. So that's probably why, probably why that happened now. But yeah, the whole idea of being the sound guy in front of people alive is just don't, don't fuck up. Like don't make, make yourself look like a boob. Don't make it about you, right? Yeah, it's good, it's good advice. <laughs> 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 so uh speaking of speaking of that kind of advice uh for people who are just getting started off do you have any advice for how they what they should do to get into the industry well i've always said you work 10 years for no money to actually make some money so being sticking with it i think is more important um i think there's people that i've seen come and go that there's a reason why they come and go. Like they, it's a lot of it's attitude. Like if you want to learn about stuff and you want people to teach you and you want to go out on tour and be a sound guy for bands, it's not relatively hard to try and do. There's always bands. There's always people like the very first time I wanted to work for a band, I said, I want to come work your show. And they're like, what? You, you have to pay you? I'm like, no, I'll just come. I'll just come hang out. I want to see how this happens. And that's what I did. I did it for like, I didn't get paid any money to do my first tour. I got some money for my second tour, but then it all sort of worked from there. You know, like, I mean, like, and stay close to it. Like, if you're a musician, just keep playing. Like, or if you want to be a musician and you and you want to stay as a musician, then do sound. Like, you know, find, find what keeps you interested and keeps you close to it. Because as soon as you start working at Long McQuaid or, you know, somewhere... Even that, you know, or, or an office or that's, I'm not saying that's bad working in an office, but it takes you further away from creating art. And people that go work in offices just means they weren't passionate enough in music to stay in music. And that's fine. That's totally fine because it leaves room for the people who are, right? It's a survival of the fittest kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, and you know what? Keep doing it. Never, never think you know everything because I've met people who think they know everything. They don't. I don't. No, none of us do. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? We're in such a changing world with how technology is going to take over and how our jobs change daily. Like, our, you know, just soundboards that come out and just being receptive. Like, there was a time with light people, lighting lighting people, when the board, it was called the go board. And the go boards are what we do now. You just hit a button and all the lights do something. When people couldn't embrace that, they were left behind. That was it. It was done. They didn't understand what the go board was because they understood if I move all these faders here, I get my lighting look. And then I just change the scene. I can change, you know what I mean? There were these things called two, two scene, two scene boards where you could set two scenes and always set scenes every time you're coming up. But they, they got left behind and you can't just get left behind. You got to keep current, but at the same time, you can't use technology to fix or use it or use it as a crutch to support what you're doing. You got to have some ears. You got to, understand how music you know is played for sure well we're getting to that point we're going to start to wrap up so how can people follow you online what's the best way for them to reach out to you go to i am i have a twitter but i'm not super active on it and it's simonhead666 um (laughs) i i don't understand why my thing my email used to be simonhead666 and now it's not but it's like 
I don't know why I, I have this affiliation with the devil, but I don't. <laughs> uh, I really don't. Nor do I with Jesus, but at the same time, maybe that's sort of just the silliness. But uh, you can follow me at SimonHead666. Um, go to my podcast, which is ApologPodcast.ca, or you can follow that or subscribe to it on iTunes. It's a wicked podcast. Um, I've been listening to it a lot you. lately. All right. Um, uh, what else? Oh, Facebook is Apolog or facebook.com slash pod, and you can come to my house. I live at, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where I live. I'm not crazy. Um, I'm always recording and I, I like to record and I, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's sort of like a, a new fun thing for me to do again. So awesome. Cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on here. Yeah, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. So there you go, guys. That's my interview with Simon Head. I love talking to that guy. He's always a lot of fun. Really great guy. I know he briefly mentioned it in the podcast, but he also has his own podcast called The Apologue Podcast, so you should check that out. In his podcast, he interviews musicians and some engineers as well, so I think you'd really like his show too. So guys, I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to this episode, and if you enjoyed it, please go to the iTunes store and leave a rating and review. It really helps to get this show out in front of more people so that we can create better content and more content. And if you guys have any questions at all that you'd like answered in this show, either by myself or any of the engineers that I'm going to be interviewing, please, please, please submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. And if this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please check out the website, MasterYourMix.com. And at the top of the website, there is a link to download your free copy of The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's a guide to help you with using EQ and compression in your mixes across a variety of different instruments. And when you download that, you'll also be added to my mailing list, where I send out weekly video tips and tutorials to help you improve your mixes. So make sure to check that out, and I'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. Thanks for listening.